Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to speak your word. Thank you for speaking to me, God, by the Holy Spirit, by your word, for giving me a a word in season for him that is weary, an exhortation, Lord, to him that needs it. I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would open every ear, every heart, that no mind would be distracted, that there be no oppression from the enemy trying to snatch away the word. But I pray in Jesus' name that your anointing would rest on both myself and the hearers, God, and that you'd change us by your mighty word. You'd encourage us by your living word and that we would leave here full of your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message is Forging Spiritual Fathers. Forging Spiritual Fathers. Would you stand with me if you can for the reading of the word Malachi 4, 5, and 6? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You may be seated. The great and dreadful day of the Lord refers to the two great advents or appearances of Jesus Christ. It is both the great day of Jesus coming to earth as Savior 2,000 years ago, and it's also the dreadful day he's coming in triumph to judge the wicked and to be glorified in his saints. Before his first coming to earth to save men by turning their hearts back to God in faith and true repentance, he would send a prophet a messenger, a mighty messenger, one that would prepare the way of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the prophet's message would be to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. This would prepare the world to receive Messiah. How amazing is this importance of the hearts of fathers in the kingdom purposes of God? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children refers to fathers caring again for their children. It implies a ceasing to live for for themselves and living for those that are weaker than them so that those little ones can, can grow up strong. Look at the inner cities in our country. Senseless violence, no respect for the lives of others. Drug abuse is rampant. Urban decay is everywhere. What is the root of the problem? It's fatherlessness. Men who beget children and abandon their responsibilities to be, uh, their responsibilities to their children and and the mother of their children. Men who live for their own pleasures. Men who fail to lead their sons and daughters in what is right. Proverbs 17, 6 says, children's children or grandchildren are the crown of old men. And the glory of children is their father. The glory of children is their father. So fathers today, here in this place, you are the glory of your children. Thank God for mothers and their critical nurturing care. But the glory of children is their father. Hasn't the glory of the children fallen in our streets and in our country? Isn't our country smitten with a self-inflicted curse of hard-hearted fathers? It's not just the inner cities, friends. It's the suburbs too. It's everywhere. Being a father is so much more than providing financially and getting Billy and Jean into college. 
A father is to turn his heart toward his children. He's to guide them in the ways of strength which are found only in God. When a father yields himself to the heavenly father, everything changes, especially his heart toward his children. As his heart is softened and changed by the tenderness and training of Jesus, he begins to love and to lead his children. He begins to listen to them. He starts growing in the leadership God intends him to walk in. He listens to them and he opens their hearts toward him. This is what children long for. And if you note, the prophecy about the father's hearts being turned toward the children was first before the children's hearts being turned toward the father. So God can work in a child first and, and turn their hearts and do a work of grace and turn their hearts toward the father or the mother and change the father through that. But typically, it's the head first. It's the father first. And fathers, we're to take the initiative. And young men who are going to become fathers in the future, it's your responsibility to turn your heart, by the grace of God, toward your children. It's your job to open their hearts to you. Hear what the Spirit said about John the Baptist fulfilling this prophecy in Malachi 4 that we read. Luke 1, 16 and 17. It says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Who's he? It's John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him or before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Turning many to the Lord is salvation and revival. And it starts with fathers in the family. And in the family, it, it starts with the head, which is the father. It starts with fathers taking responsibility before God and turning their hearts toward their greatest earthly responsibility, which is their children. Of course, the foundation of a father's responsibility is to be a shelter and a provider for his own flesh and blood. It's to work diligently to meet, to meet the needs of his wife and his, his children. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if any does not provide for his own family, and especially for those of his own house, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. So providing for our family, that's just kind of like the basic, that's the base of what a father needs to do. But being the glory of your children is so much more than providing for their physical needs. It's turning to them with your heart. It's turning their heart to you. An open heart full of the love and tenderness of Christ. That's what your children are looking for. The foundation of love is Jesus' sacrifice. Selfishness is the antithesis of God's love. Fathers who abandon their wives and children for their own pleasures know nothing of the Father's love. Maybe they did it because their own dad did it to them. But nonetheless, it's a cycle that continues until it's broken. So what does the gospel have to offer men who have failed as fathers? It offers them the most incredible turnaround, the most incredible U-turn. Listen, it's time for some of you fathers who failed to come out from the shadows of your human father and his failures. It's time to become a son of the heavenly father through faith in Jesus Christ. 
You will never be able to change yourself and break your old patterns alone because you're bound to the patterns and the sins of your father. But when you come humbly and you come believing and broken to the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ, you are washed from your sins and from your failures and you're washed from the failures of your earthly father. You are adopted as a child of God and he becomes your father who will teach you his ways and put his life in you. When you become a child of God, the chains of your past are broken. The father begins to heal you of the pains of your past as you walk before him with an open heart with the walls broken down. You know they say that garbage, I'm going to use the word garbage, garbage only runs what? Downhill, right? Garbage only runs downhill. The garbage and the failures of your father have run down to you. His mistakes, his patterns, maybe passed down from his father, they've run down to you. They become your story, your failures, your life. But guess what? When Christ is in you, then the life of Jesus marches uphill. You will begin to affect not only your children because Christ is changing you, but you'll begin to affect your father if he's still alive. And other father figures that have hurt you. Glory to Jesus. See, God's ways, they go against the ways of nature. They defy the laws of nature. I know this because I came from a broken home myself. My father left us. He left our family for another woman when I was seven years old. I know this because, I know this because when I truly decided to follow Jesus at around 18 years old, God became more than the man upstairs. He became my father. And he healed me of my deep wounds of rejection that I didn't even know I had. He healed me of all the junk that rolled downhill to me from my father. He taught me how to be a godly father to my three children despite not having an earthly example of a father to teach me. What does a godly father look like? I love that they had the scripture up. Ephesians 6.4, New Living Translation says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them, but rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. You see, God's discipline is so different than man's discipline. Man's discipline just tends to be harsh and hard, but God's discipline, though it can be sharp, it is tender and full of love and kindness. What kind of treatment would provoke children to anger? I've just listed a few. Number one, neglect. Simply not spending time with them or paying attention to them. That'll cause anger over time. Just being a, a neglected. Number two, always telling them what to do, but rarely listening to them. Uh, one thing I've learned as a father in the last several years is spend more time listening to your children. Be intentional to take time to sit down with each one of your kids and just listen to them. They don't need all your advice. God will give you opportunity to give advice by his spirit when it's time, but just listen to them. That's loving them. That's loving them. And they so long to be heard. They so long to be understood. Number three, lacking the balance of love and discipline. A father who's always correcting and hard toward his children will provoke them to anger and rebellion. The verse says, rather bring them up in the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord. Good fathers pursue and love the Lord. You want to be a good dad? Pursue Jesus Christ. 
Get to know Jesus Christ. Be diligent to know him. Make being knowing Jesus more important than your business, your career, and anything else, your hobbies, your money, everything else in your life. Make knowing Jesus Christ your number one. He will make you a good father. He will make you a great father. Praise God. Good fathers respond to the discipline and training that comes from their heavenly father. And thus they can discipline and instruct their own children with the heart of God. Good fathers seek God, not just for themselves, but for their wife and for their children. Hebrews 12, 9 through 10. It says, furthermore, we've all had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be, readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they or our earthly fathers indeed for a few days disciplined us as seemed best to them. But he disciplines or chastens us for our profit, for our benefit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. The writer of Hebrews is saying we all had human fathers and they, were, they had failures. They did what they thought was best. But we have a heavenly father who's perfect. And when he disciplines us, we need to listen. When he disciplines or chastens us or rebukes us, we need to receive it because his goal is not to harm us, it's for our profit. It's for our blessing, it's for our benefit that we be partakers of his holiness. A good father will never say, do as I say, not as I do. But rather he will lead his children by example. And when he fails, and you will fail, fathers, we all fail in many things, right? When you fail, the honest father will be honest. He'll admit his failures. That's humility. He'll say, I was wrong. Son, I spoke to you in harshness. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? He'll admit his wrong. He'll apologize and ask for forgiveness. That's strength. That's strength. Strength is not walking around like you never make a mistake. No, strength is being willing to admit when you're wrong. Kids are, they're so bright. They're so smart. I mean, you take two, three-year-olds, and they'll know if you're playing the hypocrite. They know if you're, if you're not being honest. They know when you fail and won't admit it. And when you act like a hypocrite and won't admit your failures, you're not being glorious to them. You're not being the glory of the Father they need to see. It's glorious to humble yourself. It's glorious to say, I'm sorry, because what? It reconciles a relationship. It mends it back together. They're not going to look at you and say, oh, what a weak dad. What a wimpy dad. They're going to say, oh, my dad is real. My dad is real. He's an honest man. And I respect that. A good father will teach his children the ways of God and not leave that up to the mother alone. Well, that's a womanly thing. The mama, mama can teach the kids about the Bible and Jesus. No. God forbid. He will, the godly man will bless his wife for her collaboration with him. He'll say, let's partner together to, to train our kids. And they will train their children in the, way, the ways of God. But he will know that he, the father, is to be the primary instructor. Genesis 18, 19. God, speaking of Abraham, says, For I, know, I have known him, or chosen him, some translations say, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God says, I've called Abraham, I've known him, and in order that he will command his children, or that he will command his children and his household after him, 
Deuteronomy 4.9 says, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Teach them. He's speaking to fathers. He said, don't forget the things I've taught you, the things I've shown you, but teach them to your children. You know one of the great ways to avoid forgetting the truths of God is teach them to someone else. And if you're a parent, you can teach them to your children. If you're a father, you're called to teach them to your kids. And if you're a grandparent, your job is not just to spoil the grandkids, right? It's to teach them the ways of God. So be careful how much you spoil your grandkids. I'm not a grandfather yet, and I'm sure I will fail at spoiling and, and spoil my grandkids. But I want to teach them the ways of God. I want to partner with my children in, in teaching their children the ways of God. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Remember, God wants to turn the hearts of the fathers. And he wants to put his word in our hearts to bring and to teach our children. But don't teach the word of God just ramming it down their throat and preaching it and teaching it in pride. Do it in love. Do it in humility. Listen to what it says. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently or carefully to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. In other words, the word of God is just supposed to saturate your family. And you as the head, you as the glory of your children, you should be talking, teaching, teaching them at every opportunity that you can. And it says in verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? You see, if you create an environment where you're teaching and training your kids up in the ways of God, they're going to ask you questions. And uh, for me, there's nothing, it's a blessing when my one of my children comes to me and says, hey, I was reading in the word and I, I'm just kind of stumped on this. What do you think this means? I'm like, oh, I get to share with them. I get to teach them. We're having an interaction around the word of God. It's amazing, and it's wonderful. A good father will use his tongue to praise his wife in front of his children and not tear her down. Proverbs 31, 28 says, Her children arise up to who? The godly woman. And they call her blessed. And her husband also. And he praises her. So husbands, you want to strengthen your family? Praise your wife. Don't flatter her. Praise her. Praise her in front of your children. Praise her in front of others. God's given you a godly woman. Be thankful for her and praise God for her and build her up in front of others. I have failed at that at times. I remember early in our marriage, my wife would come, we'd come home from some time with a friend, some friends, and, and she'd, be, she'd be quiet and kind of cold. And I'd say, what's wrong, honey? She said, well, what you said to our friends about me, it embarrassed me, made me feel very put down. I said, really? I didn't mean that. I was just joking. I was just joking. Be careful how you joke. Your joke can be hurtful. Be careful that you don't use your words to put down your wife. And I was corrected, and it happened more than once, and I had to repent more than once. But I've learned over time, don't speak words that put your wife down. Speak words that build her up. Amen? God gives all human fathers natural instincts to protect their family from physical danger. A good and godly father will be a gatekeeper. He will watch for danger over the entrance points of his family to protect them from spiritual harm. 
A godly father is a watchman praying for and over his family. He will say, you know, you can't bring that into, into our house, son. You can't bring that music into our house. That's demonic music. That music glorifies violence. It glorifies Satan. It glorifies sex, drugs, and everything else. You can't bring that into the house, son. Daughter, you can't watch that. You can't watch that on your phone. You can't, you can't watch that on YouTube or whatever because I love you. I'm your gatekeeper, and I'm going to help you, and we can talk about this, but we have to have a standard of righteousness in our home. In the book of Esther, there was a Jew named Mordecai, and he gives a powerful illustration of a godly man who took the role of a father for his orphan niece, Hadassah, or Esther. Mordecai carried the weight of others. He was a gatekeeper and a watchman, not only for Esther, but he became a watchman for, this, for his people. He became not only a, a human father, but a spiritual father. Perhaps you are not a father to, to human children or earthly children, hopefully not alien children, but you can be a man of influence and fill the role of someone else who's absent or who has fallen down for their children. Esther 2.7, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, this was an uncle. He wasn't even like, he was kind of, not an uncle, he was a, a, a cousin. And so he didn't have a close family relationship, but he took the place. He was much older than her. He took it upon himself to see this orphan girl and to step in to fill the place of being a, a father to her. Godly fathers are weight-bearing men. They see the needs of others and they step up to bear them. They step up. They don't have to be seen. They don't have to blow a trumpet and say, this, look what I did, look what I did. They just do these things in secret. They just do these things because they're men of character. They're weight-bearing men. We're going to look at a brief overview of the book of Esther to see how one man, one man stepping up to be a father of an orphan girl became a spiritual father who changed the destiny of a nation. Men who are taught by God to be godly fathers to their children go on to be spiritual fathers to many more people. 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul said, For though you have 10,000 instructors or teachers in Christ, you don't have many fathers. In other words, you don't have many spiritual fathers. Paul was a spiritual father. One of the places spiritual fathers are born or forged is in their own home raising children. Those of you that know the word will know that one of the requirements for men who want to be overseers or elders in the church is to have their own family in order. For if a man doesn't know how to lead his own family, how can he lead in the house of God? If he can't shepherd his own children, how can he shepherd the sheep in the church? The setting of the book of Esther is the reign of the Persian king Xerxes in the capital of Shushan around 480 B.C., the king decided to make a feast celebrating his glory and his wealth, the wealth of his kingdom, which spanned from Sudan and Africa all the way to India. This celebration, this feast, lasted for 180 days. Honey, our cookout was a lot of work, but imagine 180 days of festival. 180 days. In the last week of the festivals, King Xerxes called his wife, Queen Vashti, to appear before him to display her beauty to himself and his royal guests. It says a few verses before that that she had her own, her own feast for the women. 
So I don't know, maybe she was busy with her own feast and she got the call from the chamberlains that came and said, hey, guess what, change of plans. The king wants you to appear and he wants you to come really quickly. He wants you to put on your best clothes and show your beauty. You know what she said? Ain't coming. I don't know if it's because she was, she was busy with other things. I don't know what it was, but in, essentially she dishonored the king. She despised his command and she refused to come. The king was very angry at this disrespect to his command. Some of his counselors suggested that the king depose Queen Vashti for not coming and look for a new queen among the beautiful virgins of his kingdom. They said, king, if you let this go, this great disrespect to you, then all the women in the whole province are going to think that they can just disrespect their husbands. You got, you got to deal with this king. And the king listened to their advice and he deposed Vashti, basically he divorced her. And they went about setting up, going throughout all the provinces, I mean hundreds of thousands of square miles, looking for all the, the, the prettiest girls, the, the prettiest virgins. And they brought them to the palace king of Shushan. And there in the palace for 12 months, they, they, they put these women through probably courses in language and courses in etiquette so that they wouldn't offend the king. And they conditioned them with, uh, with oils and with, with myrrh and with... Uh, perfumes so that they would smell good. I mean, I don't know why it takes 12 months to get perfumed up, but they were 12 months in this process of being prepared for the king, and then they would come before the king one at a time, and they would get to choose their own garments. They, they probably had this huge uh, uh, wardrobe of clothes, of beautiful garments and jewelry and perfumes, and they said, okay, it's your turn. We've conditioned you. Now wear what you'd like to wear before the king, and, and we'll see if he chooses you. And Esther, a Jew, was one of the, was one of the young women that was collected in this, in this taking of these young girls to be, to be in this competition, really, to be the king's wife, the new queen. Esther, chapter 2, verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard, or were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him. She pleased Haggai, the custodian of the women. He was over all these women getting prepared for their one, their one appearance before the king. And it says, now the young woman pleased him, verse 9, and she obtained his favor. Whenever you read that word favor, it means grace also. So think of that. He, she obtained his grace. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides what she was allowed like the other women. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Listen, I believe that God gave her favor because of her humility. That, that Haggai, the king's chamberlain, he saw her character, he saw her humility, and that's what gave him grace toward her, and he showed her favor. This was one of the fruits, I believe, that Mordecai taught her, being a godly father. Verse 11, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters. While she was preparing for a year, he was pacing back and forth. It says, To learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. You see, his heart was turned toward her. His heart cared about Esther. And he poured in his time and he poured in his resources. He poured in his prayers for his daughter. Praise God. 
Esther 2, verse 15 and 17. It says, Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she, listen, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Praise God. Last week we, we learned and talked about the heart of a king. Here we see the heart of a queen. Esther could have chosen any of the dresses and the jewelry and the perfumes that she wanted to go before the king. But she had learned the beauty of submission under Mordecai. And she let the king's chamberlain choose everything for her. Do you want to wear this dress or this dress? You choose. This jewelry, this is a gorgeous, this is from the Nile, this gorgeous necklace. You want to wear that? You choose. What about the perfumes, Esther? What, what about these perfumes? Which smell do you? You choose. She let the, king, the chamberlain, the servant of the king, choose everything for her. Hallelujah. This is a type of the bride of Christ letting the Holy Spirit adorn her to go before the king of kings. Do you see that? Do you see that our attitude before God should be, Lord, Holy Spirit, you clothe me. I'll wear whatever you want me to wear. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll say whatever you want me to say. You adorn me. That grants favor. That grants grace. That's the heart that we should have as children of God. Praise God. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, she and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. You see, Mordecai's influence in, in his daughter Esther and his adopted daughter Esther had so taught her the beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, the beauty of a submissive spirit, that when the king saw her, I don't think that Esther, I know she was beautiful, but I don't think she was the most beautiful of all these virgins. But the king discerned her heart attitude. The king discerned her submissive spirit, and that's what caused him to love her. That's what caused her, him to show her this grace. And she was made the queen. How different from Vashti, who was called to come before the king? She said, no, I'm busy. Queen Esther was different. She was the kind of woman that he was looking for. And it says, when the virgins, verse 19, were gathered a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Where did Mordecai go when his, when his daughter was promoted to be queen? He went right back to the king's gate. See, he, this king's gate is a representation of a place of intercession. It's a place of watching. It's a place where people are going in and out. It's a place where good things happen and bad things happen. And Mordecai was transitioning from being just a father to Esther to being a spiritual father over his people. Verse 20, now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had told her or charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Praise God. Think about that. She didn't reveal that she was a Jew yet because Mordecai had told her, don't reveal your ancestry. Don't reveal that you're a Jew. She was now queen over a vast province, over the greatest kingdom in the world. And she could have said, well, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm queen now. Her heart was still one of honor. Her heart was still one of submission. And she didn't reveal who she was. And God would use that later in the book in a powerful way, in a powerful timing, when it was God's time for her to reveal who she was. So as Mordecai sat watching in the gate, 
He overheard a plot by two of the king's chamberlains to assassinate the king. They were angry at the king for something, so maybe some injustice, maybe someone else, another chamberlain got promoted from keeper of the door to keeper of the temple. I don't know. And they weren't promoted, and they were angry, and they started talking and plotting, and they said, let's kill the king. And somehow Mordecai, sitting at the gate, saw and heard their plot, and he brought the attention to the attention of Esther, the queen. He sent word to her, and she investigated it by other people, and the men were tried, and they were executed. And the Bible says that they, that they wrote this whole account down in the book of the Chronicles of the King. It basically is like a journal for the king. It's a historical record of everything that happens in the kingdom. And Mordecai's un unveiling of this plot was written in the Chronicles of the King. But you know what happened for Mordecai? Was he celebrated? Was he promoted? Did they have a big party? No. It was kind of, it was forgotten. It was written in the Chronicles of the book, and nothing happened. And you know what Mordecai did? Oh, wow! Look what I did. I saved the king, and I'm not even promoted. No. He just went back to the king's gate. He just went back to doing what godly men do. Being faithful without caring about how he's, he's seen or how he's, he's adored or how he's praised. He just went back to doing God's will. Praise God. And that's the kind of character he had put into Esther. He just went back to praying. Look, friends, there's times in our lives where you can do good things for God, hidden things, and they're overlooked. They're not overlooked. God sees them all. He writes them down, and he's saving those things for a future time where he will honor you. It may be here on this life, but it will, likely, it will definitely be in heaven. He will honor. There, he, does not, he does not miss anything. So if you do something for God and it's unseen, praise God, that's how it should be most of the time. Right? And God, when, if, if he wants to bring it to light and bring some, some honor to you, because the Bible does say that he honors those who honor him. And he'll do it. He'll use it in his own time. I don't have time to get into that part of the, of the story today, maybe next week. But there's some powerful things about how God used that thing that was written down later to bring about his will. So then the king promoted a man called Haman to the second highest place in the kingdom. He gave him beautiful robes and, and a high position. And Haman went around and you know, went around with the king's horses and went around. Everybody was bowing down to him. Everybody's giving homage to, to Haman, the great man, second in command. Everybody was bowing down to Haman, giving man worship, except one person. Who do you think that was? Mordecai. Mordecai just was a man of prayer. He was just a man of intercession, a man at the king's gate, a nobody. But he wasn't bowing down to man's worship. He had one God that he worshipped, and he wouldn't bow down. And the other servant said, hey, you better correct this. You better start bowing down because things aren't going to go well for you if Haman finds out. Well, guess what? Haman found out. And when Haman found out, he was so angry. See, that's what pride does. And Haman was a personification of pride. He really is a great type of the devil. He was a personification of pride. And when, when Mordecai just wouldn't bow down to him, he just kept doing what he was doing. He was so angry, he not only plotted to kill Haman, he said, it's not enough to kill Haman. I'm going to kill his whole race. What are, who, is, who are his people? Oh, he is a Jew? We're going to kill the whole Jewish race. That's the work of Satan. He's done it throughout history. What do you think Hitler did? It's the same anti-Semitism. It was that same spirit of Antichrist that says, I'm going to wipe out God's people. 
So Haman went to the king and he said, oh, king, I just want to have your attention for this. There's this group of people that are kind of weird and they don't honor the king's laws and they have their own customs and they're kind of a petulant people. It's, it's, really, it's really not profitable that they continue. I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver if we can, we can set up a day, maybe 10 months from now, where all the enemies of the Jews can go and just have a free-for-all on the Jews. You just kill them all. Men, women, children, we can take their goods. I'm going to personally put up 10,000 talents of silver to do this. And the king said, well, I guess if these people are petulant and these people are a problem, then go ahead and do it. And he gave him, took off his ring, gave Haman his ring, and Haman wrote up the law, stamped the law. And in Persia, the law of the king, once it was stamped, it was irrevocable. You couldn't reverse it. He stamped it. And the word went out into all the provinces, all the way to India, all the way to Sudan, all throughout Mesopotamia, all the way up to Israel and Italy. It went everywhere. And when the Jews heard this, they were grieved. And when Mordecai heard it sitting at the king's gate, it says he tore his clothes and he wept and he put on sackcloth and he fell down before the king's gate. I believe he was weeping, he was praying, he was interceding. And Esther heard of it. She didn't hear the whole story. She's in the queen's palace. Some of the stuff on the ground didn't get to her yet. She said she sent clothes. To, she heard he was mourning. She sent a, a new pair of clothes to Mordecai to put on some fresh clothes. He refused. And he sent message back to Queen Esther in the palace. And he said, he said, don't you know what's happened? He said, this is what's happened. Haman has made a law that all the Jews are going to be destroyed. I believe it was about 10 months from that point. 10 months from that point. And he said, I want you to go into the king and to petition the king for your people. Now's the time, Esther, to show your, who, you're, who you are. Now's the time to reveal that you're a Jew. And she wrote back to him, by, she sent by message by a messenger and said, you know the law of the, of the kings of Persia, that you can't just appear before the king of Persia and just say, hey, I'd like to talk to you. You have to be called. And she said, I haven't been called for 30 days. The law of the Persians is that if you appear before the king without being called and he doesn't extend to you the golden scepter, that you're executed, no matter who you are. This is a very dangerous thing. And she writes this back to Mordecai and she says, Father, this is what's going to happen to me. I, I, I haven't been called. Listen to what he says. Listen to what this godly father, this spiritual father says. Verse, verse 12, this is a, a, a Esther 4, verse 12. And it says, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He doesn't say, daughter, oh, protect yourself, hide yourself. I love you so much. I want you to be preserved. He says, no, daughter. You were born for such a time as this. You were born to hazard your life for the life of others. That's the message of Calvary. We've been given a gospel that can save this world. And yes, we will sometimes mean hazarding our lives for other people. But the spiritual father says, don't hide yourself. Don't be quiet now. Now is the time to stand. Now is the time to reveal who you are, that you're a child of the king. Praise God.
So Esther, Esther listened to her adopted father and sent word to him to join her in fasting for three days. She said, don't eat food, don't drink water. Me and my maidservants, we're going to fast for three days. You do the same thing. That fasting implies that they were crying out to God. They were crying out to the high king in order to go to the earthly king. And so they did it for three days. She said, I will go to the king which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, that's the, that's the heart of a queen. She's not loving her life, afraid of death, afraid of loss, afraid of comfort. She says, I will go, and if I perish, I perish. Hallelujah. That's the heart of a queen developed in the house of a spiritual father. Esther 5, 1 through 3. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She took up the courage. She put on her robes. She went before the king across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house, so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you want? What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Glory to God. She had humbled herself. She had fasted and prayed. She had followed the word of her father. And she would put her own life in her own hands. And she came into the king's presence. And she said, she said earlier, she said, it's against the law. Guess what? Grace allows you to do what the law can never enable you to do. It says she found grace in the eyes of the king. Why? Because she came with humility. She came with the cause of her people. She came with the cause higher than herself. She obtained favor and she obtained grace. And the king said, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. I'm ready to give to you. My God. What a beautiful and incredible, beautiful picture of New Testament open doors for us to boldly come to the throne of grace. Did you know that there's not a law in heaven that you as a child of God can't come unless you're called? That if you come and he doesn't extend the royal scepter to you, that you're going to be killed? There's no such law in the throne of grace. If you're a child of God, you've been called to come. It's a continual call. Come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. Come boldly. See, because Christ has gone before us. Christ has made the way and clothed us with his garments. It says, when the king saw her dressed in her garments, she obtained favor. When the king sees you and I in the garments of salvation and the robe of his righteousness, which we've been given by faith, he says, come boldly. Come boldly. Don't come wearing anything else, but come boldly in the righteousness of my son. And I'll give you not half the kingdom, all the kingdom. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The whole kingdom. Praise God. What access we've been given. What incredible access we've been given. Praise Jesus. Oh, we need men today to be godly fathers in their homes Raising a godly seed with their wives, doing the minutia, doing the hard work, listening to their child when they're tired and they come home from work and their child says, hey, can you help me with this homework? Guilty, I'm guilty. Guilty of not doing it sometimes. <laughs> but we need fathers that will raise their children, their sons and their daughters 
and then learn by the power of the Spirit as they seek God to become spiritual fathers. That their vision for, for protecting the weak will expand outside their own home to the church of Jesus Christ and to the world. And that men will be raised up to bring others into a place of safety. Praise God. Praise the Lord. I think there's going to be a part two to this message next week, which is going to go through the rest of the book of Esther. Because I don't have time today. But I, I want to say this. God loves it when a father takes his responsibility. First to protect, to provide, and especially when a man says, I'm going to seek God to know how to be a father for my children. God loves that. And he'll teach you. He taught me. He taught me. He will teach you, fathers. He will teach you where to be gentle. He'll teach you where to be firm. He'll teach you where, when to give instruction. He'll teach you when to be quiet and to listen. He will teach you. Praise God. I know there are good fathers in this house today. I know there are people with all different backgrounds. But I want to give a challenge to the fathers today to step up, to be the father to your children, the husband to your wife, and to pray and ask the Lord to make you a spiritual father, to make you like this man Mordecai who didn't do much great stuff, but he just went into the king's gate and interceded. He was a man of prayer. He was a man that saw the brokenness, he saw the danger, and he raised his voice. He raised his voice to people, he raised his voice to God. So I'm going to open this altar for you men. If the Holy Spirit is touching you and you feel a cry, a hunger, for a deeper walk with God, to be the father that he's called you to be and to become a spiritual father, I open this altar to you. Praise God. As you are coming and praying, I also want to say this, that God is a father who's calling all people to himself, men, women, and children, every single one. He's a, he's a father to the fatherless, as we said earlier. He loves you. But I want to tell you something. You don't, God doesn't become your father by osmosis. He doesn't become your father by coming to church or, or getting some religion or reading your Bible. He becomes your father when you're born again. And that's an event that happens when you recognize that you are a sinner and that religion can't save you and your good works can't save you and your church attendance can't save you, but only Jesus Christ can save you. And when you realize that, and you realize that he died for you and rose again for you to make you his child, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, willing to turn from your sin and your old life, something miraculous happens. Not something by osmosis, but something by a miracle of God where the Spirit of God comes into you and you become an adopted child of God. My friend, he wants that for, that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to build religious institutions. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to reconcile you to the Father and to himself. He came because he loves you. And I want to urge you and exhort you by the Holy Spirit of God that if you're not sure if you're a child of God, you can be today. You can be today. I urge you to come and talk to me. Come to this altar. I will pray with you. I'll lead you in a simple prayer, just acknowledging what I just said, and lead you to Christ. 
Because the hour is too late to be just a little religious or to just like good preaching. The hour is here to know Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. Come forward if that's you. Stop.